The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in free. Two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, Zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Hello, everybody. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is physics and astronomy professor Daniel Whiteson. But before you categorize him as just another researcher who happens to go to CERN, Switzerland, periodically to study exotic new microparticles in that unbelievable underground circular research facility, think again because Daniel also has a bit of a media empire going with podcasts, a PBS television show, and books, which we're going to hear about. He has a new book coming out, which we'll hear more about that. And so today we're also just going to get to know him and his expertise and activity. So welcome to UCI Conversations, Professor Whiteson. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to talk to you. Fantastic. I always like to start out with, where did you grow up and what did you like to do when you were a kid? <laughs> well, I'm a physicist, so it might not be a surprise that I grew up in a physics-inspired town. I grew up in Los Alamos, New Mexico, home oh of the gosh. Manhattan Project. And That's Los amazing. That, like, you're Laboratory. the first person to tell me that they actually grew up there. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people feel like maybe everybody who grows up in Los Alamos turns out to be a physicist. Uh, I might be the only one, actually. But um, yeah, I grew up in Los Alamos. My parents worked with the laboratory uh, doing things uh, in secret I still don't know about. Um, so I grew up sort of with physics in the air. Yeah, and ser seriously, like there are things that you still don't know about? Like, really? I never visited my parents' office. I never went to a company picnic. None of those things because they were behind the fence and they had clearances. And of course, I didn't. So, you know, I knew sort of generally what they worked on, but uh, nothing very specific at all. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. Okay. So <laughs> I get how you were in that environment. So when did you start thinking like, yeah, that's what I'm going to study in college? I mean, was it just kind of a, a natural you always knew that or, or when did you get serious about it? I think like a lot of scientists, it comes down to having one particular inspired teacher. Yeah. Um, I took AP Physics C from a physicist at the lab who would come in at like 630 in the morning and teach us zero hour AP Physics before he went off to his day job of being an actual physicist. And, you know, he loved it and I loved that he loved it. And eventually I loved it. And so it just seemed awesome and fun to me to be a physicist, 
to do physics. And that's sort of like when the bug first bit me. And then I went off to college and I thought, well, you know, let's see if I can do this. And yeah. I just got more and more interested the deeper I went. And, uh, and here I am still 20 years later, still having fun. That's fantastic. Where'd you go to undergrad school? I went to Rice University in Houston. Okay. Um, and I studied physics there and also computer science because I was a programming nerd. In fact, everybody else in my family has a degree in computer science. So they're all programmers. Okay. And then did you go right to grad school after that? I didn't actually. I took a year off and I went to Copenhagen for a year. And I worked at the Niels Bohr Institute there doing a bit of physics research, but mostly learning Danish and drinking Danish beer and just sort of having a good time before I went to grad school. Is that your heritage or was there a reason why you went to Denmark? No, it's not my heritage at all. Uh, my background is uh, Jewish and American. And uh, the only reason I went to Denmark is because I didn't speak any foreign language well enough to apply to do research in that language. Like if you wanted to go to Italy, you had to speak Italian. If you wanted to go to France, you needed like three years of college French. I didn't have any of that. Um, but Copenhagen and Amsterdam were the only two cities you could go to where all you needed was English. Uh, of course, you know, London, but that was very competitive. So I applied to Copenhagen and uh, lo and behold, uh, got a fellowship to go and uh, had a great time. And now I speak Danish and my wife is Danish. And so it turned out to be quite fortuitous. Did you meet her in Denmark? I didn't actually. I met her in Berkeley. After Denmark, I came back and started grad school at Berkeley. And when you do grad school at Berkeley in physics, it's like five physics classes all day long. But I wanted something a little different, you know, a little bit more spice. And so I took a Danish class at Berkeley at the same time. And she was in that class learning Danish. And so the two of us met there. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. Was school easy for you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think everybody gets to a point where they bump their head against something. And that's a different point for everybody. I remember thinking math was fun and it sort of clicked in my mind for me um, up until the point. And I remember that point. I was a junior in college and taking complex analysis and you have to do these like high dimensional integrals in a complex plane. And I just couldn't visualize it. And I saw other people just like being totally fluent in this new language. That I just couldn't figure out. Um, so everybody bumps into that point at some times uh, and other times, you know, other things for me were easier, like abstract algebra, groups and rings and sets and all that kind of stuff, um, you know, came naturally to me, but some things in math were tricky. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Good. So uh, you went to Denmark. How did you make your way to UCI? So I got my PhD at Berkeley and then I did research in Chicago at the, what was at the time, the most powerful accelerator in the world, the Tevatron, which is at Fermilab. And so I was doing my PhD there. And then I did a postdoc at the same facility paid for by University of Pennsylvania, uh, but doing research at the Tepatron. So we were smashing particles together and trying to make new particles and trying to understand what was the fundamental nature of matter and the smallest thing in the universe and all that kind of stuff. And that was a lot of fun. And after a few years as a postdoc, I got contacted by UCI asking me to apply for a position here uh, in the physics department. And so I thought, wow, cool, that's exciting. And yeah. so the um, first time I ever came to Irvine or to Orange County was to do a job interview. Very cool. And what year was that? Uh, that must have been 2006. Okay, super. So you were offered a position in the uh, Department of, what? yeah, is, is it the Department of Physics and Astronomy? Mm -hmm. Okay. This is the biggest question of the day. Are you a physicist <laughs> or are you an astronomer? 
oh, I would love to be an astronomer, but the actual astronomers on our department would grind their teeth if they heard me <laughs> describe myself as an astronomer. You know, physics is a very broad department. We have people who smash particles together. We have people who make new kinds of electronic goo. We have people who, you know, look through telescopes. We have people who simulate galaxies. And so um, it's physics and astronomy, which means we have physicists and we have astronomers and we have some people on the boundary. I'm really a physicist, but I love astronomy and cosmology and all that kind of stuff. So I'm really grateful to have colleagues around who I can talk to about those things and ask dumb questions and, and just learn about these topics. So what is it within physics? What's your speciality? <laughs> so I do experimental particle physics, which means that we try to understand the world at the smallest scale. It's very reductionist. We say, let's look at the universe around us and try to understand everything as the product of smaller things. Like, you know, I want to understand why is there ice cream and lava and hamsters and all that kind of crazy, amazing stuff in the universe. And to me, the best explanation for all this complexity, all these amazing things that we see in our beautiful universe comes from the arrangement of tiny particles. You know, that like uh, a pound of hamster and a pound of lava are made of the same things, have exactly the same ingredients. The only thing that's different between them is how those particles are arranged. So to me, it's a really interesting, deep insight into the universe that what makes you, you and me, me is not what we're made out of, but how those things are arranged. And so I want to dig deep as possible into understanding, like, what are the smallest things? What are the rules of those arrangements? Because I feel like that's going to tell us what the deepest nature of the universe is. So as an experimental particle physicist, I smash stuff together at really high energy to try to break it apart into those smallest things and figure out what it's all made out of. Wow. You know, when you talk about those same ingredients, is it a short list or is it a long list? It's a tiny, tiny list. It's just three particles. There's the electron, which orbits the atomic nucleus, right? Everybody knows what electrons are. They're part of electricity and stuff like that. Inside the atomic nucleus, there's the proton and the neutron. But those are actually just made out of two different kinds of particles we call quarks, up quarks and down quarks. So you put up quarks and down quarks together, you can make protons and neutrons. Put electrons in there and you can make an atomic nucleus. And everything that I've ever eaten or cooked or whatever or thrown at my siblings is made of up quarks, down quarks, and electrons. Those are the only ingredients, like a particle physicist cookbook would only have three ingredients for every recipe. And the incredible part on top of that is that it's the same ingredients in the same proportions. You have the same number of up quarks, down quarks, and electrons in everything. Wow. It blows the mind, right? It does blow the mind. It really does. I think more will be revealed on that. And and (laughs) actually, which could be a great transition into you have a podcast. Just a quick update for those of you who joined us late. You are listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI experimental particle physicist Daniel Whiteson. After growing up in Los Alamos, New Mexico, and studying physics in college, he came to UCI in 2006 and loves to communicate about science. Here he talks about his podcast, Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe. I do have a podcast. It's called Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe. I do it together with my friend and longtime collaborator, Jorge Cham. He's something of a celebrity in academia. I'm sure everybody at UCI knows him. He's the genius behind PhD Comics, 
which is a well-known webcomic, uh, was a Stanford um, newspaper cartoon that sort of lambasts what it's like to be a graduate student and the frustrations of research. And uh, he really puts his finger on it, which is why like every academic lab you go to or office door, you'll see like one of his cartoons on the door. He's also a great science communicator and science translator. Uh, you know, he really knows how to like ask the question that will clarify something. So on the podcast, my role is like, I'm the physics expert. And we're talking about the origins of the universe or the tiniest particles, the insides of black holes. And he stands in for the audience and he asks the questions like, hold on a second, what does that word really mean? And so we talk about everything on the podcast. We talk about, you know, how neutron stars are made and what the James Webb telescope will teach us and what is a gluon and how is it discovered and all sorts of stuff. We have a lot of fun. Oh, excellent. How long have you had the podcast? Uh, it's going on three years now. We're just about to put out our 300th episode. It comes out twice a week. It's put out by iHeartMedia and you can find it anywhere you find your podcasts. Um, but we've been having a lot of fun with it. That's amazing. How do you find time to do it? Yeah, it's a fun project. And so it's a labor of love, you know. One key to this podcast is that there's not that much prep work. Like a podcast is not scripted. It's truly a spontaneous conversation between two people about science. And I think one thing that makes it work is that it really is just a conversation. And so it's a lot of riffing and joking and exploration. And often we end up talking about things we didn't intend to because we're following our curiosity. So I think it comes off sort of sincere that way. And the bonus is that I don't have to like write an hour long podcast twice a week, which would be a huge amount of work. So I just go off and I research a topic. If I don't know it well enough, I ask my colleagues a little bit about it. So I have enough background to talk about it for an hour. And then we just have a conversation. So it's a good time. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. How did you have the chutzpah to start a podcast? Like how did it germinate? And you, you know, once you stepped into it, was it like, oh, yeah, we're just going for this? Or, or was it like, <laughs> oh, my God, what have we done? <laughs> no, you're right. Everybody has a podcast now. So who needs another <laughs> one? Um, well, it came out of our book, actually. Jorge and I, in 2017, published a book called We Have No Idea. And it's all about the things we don't know about the universe, the big unanswered questions, things like, you know, what is space? And how did time begin? And you know, these sort of like deep questions about the universe that you don't usually get to talk to and that science doesn't often admit that it doesn't know. Uh, so we wrote that book and we had a lot of fun with it. And we went around and did a tour of various cities giving a talk about the book. And like everything else we did, we didn't prepare the talk far in advance. We just sort of winged it. And every night we would do it, it'd be a little bit different and there'd be some back and forth. And so somebody saw it and said, hey, you guys would be good in a podcast and reached out to us from Stuff Media, which put out a bunch of podcasts at the time, and asked us, like, hey, would you guys try recording a podcast? And we thought, well, we've never done that before, but we have fun talking science, so let's give it a shot. Yeah. So we sat down in the studio and recorded an episode, and they said, this sounds great, let's do it. And so we just went from there. That's great. Any surprises along the way, like, oh my gosh, they can't, they, they listen to us in Nepal, or I don't know, any, <laughs> any surprises? Yeah, surprise number one is anybody likes listening to me talking about science. You know, I'm just there talking to an old friend of mine about science and making jokes. And I forget that there's going to be an audience that people are going to listen. 
And so it was amazing to me to see the response. You know, I do get emails from all over the world, people who are 90 years old, people who are nine years old, people who listen with their nine-year-olds. It's really heartwarming to hear about people who, you know, didn't get to do physics in school, but were always interested and use this as a way to like keep in touch and uh, sort of tickle that physics bone. So yeah, it's a surprise to me that it's found a home and that so many people seem to be enjoying it. Uh, But it's a pleasant surprise for sure. Any funny production stories? You guys are funny just on the air. Anything, you know, behind the scenes that we might not realize? Yeah, I think that one thing people might not realize from listening to the podcast is that it is edited. I mean, it's done unscripted, which means it's very fresh. But sometimes Jorge will ask me a question and I just won't know the answer. And so we'll have to pause while I read Wikipedia about it for five minutes. And then I come back and sound very authoritative. But really, there's been like a time jump there where I was scrambled to do a little bit more research. And that's one of the great things about working with Jorge is that he's always asking a good question. Later, when I'll listen to the podcast, I'll be like, oh, that's the obvious next question to ask. Why didn't I anticipate that? Um, But, you know, it's not always easy to see the problem from the point of view of somebody learning it when you know it really well. So that's why it's great that he's there asking those questions. But sometimes I need to do a little bit of internet scrambling to get the answers. Right. Where do you guys record your show? Do you have an in-home studio? I have an in-home studio, which is my closet, which is where (laughs) I'm sitting right now. Um, It's outfitted with a high quality microphone and a bunch of laundry. And apparently that's a good combination for recording audio. Right. Where does Jorge live? He lives in Pasadena. And so, you know, that's like 30 minutes to six hours away, depending on traffic. (laughs) So we don't record together in person. I give him a call and we chat over the phone and we each record our own audio. And then we have an engineer at the iHeartRadio headquarters in Atlanta who mixes it all together and adds music and cuts out my Wikipedia lookup times and all that kind of stuff. Gotcha. And I noticed that miracle Grow seems to be and that miracle Grow plant food is a, <laughs> it seems to be a sponsor of your, is, do I perceive that correctly? Yeah, or? there is an ad campaign for miracle Grow right now. The podcast is ad supported. You know, a bunch of podcasts these days are like Patreon supported where people can sign up to support the artist. Ours because it's put out by a big media conglomerate is advertising supported. So we get to vet the ads at least. Um, you know, we get to say no to Big Pharma or handgun ads or anything we find distasteful. But I thought Miracle Grow, why not? Well, I also see that you're a co-creator of the PBS television show Eleanor Wonders Why. Can you That's right. tell us all about that? Yeah, this started a few years ago. Uh, we got an email from PBS that said that they were looking for people to create a new television show about science for preschoolers. So three to five-year-olds. And, you know, I'm an educator here at UC Irvine, and our books are for a general audience, meaning like, you know, nine to 99. But I've never taught kids in like three and four years old. But they wanted to reach out and find new creators, people who weren't in the sort of like PBS universe. They wanted to broaden their little community and find somebody to create a show. So they went out very, very broadly and asked lots of people to pitch them a television show. And the TV show needed to be about science for three to five-year-olds. So Jorge and I put our heads together and went back and forth and did a lot of reading about like the educational pedagogy, how you teach science to four-year-olds, how you know whether it's working. So we came up with a whole curriculum plan. I talked to the people at the education school here at UCI some really smart people who shared their insights with me. And we wrote a whole pitch about how to teach uh, science to these kids. 
And our idea was that the show should be about questions, that three and four-year-olds ask a lot of questions about the universe. And anybody who has a three and four-year-old knows they're always asking why. And what we didn't want is a show where the kids ask a question and the adults just like give them an answer. What we wanted to do was teach the kids how to answer their own questions, how to like use really basic science processes to figure out their own answers. Not because, you know, adults won't give them answers, but because we wanted to teach them critical thinking. We wanted to raise a generation that knew how to figure out answers for themselves. And so our core idea was a little town full of cute animals um, and some of those animals are kids and those kids are curious and they go around and they're inspired to ask questions like, you know, why have I never seen a butterfly baby? Or, you know, do fish have eyelids? Just really basic questions. Why do birds sing? And then figure out the answers for themselves. So we put this pitch together and we sent it to PBS and we knew lots of people were going to pitch. And so we just sort of like sent it in and forgot about it. The way I do with like all my grant proposals, because, you know, you get a tiny fraction of them, you send them in, you let it go. But several months later, PBS gave us a call and they were like, we like it, make the show. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? This was just a pitch. You really want us to make a television show? So I scrambled and like did a lot of Googling, like how to make TV show. I seriously typed that into Google at some point. And we learned the business. We figured out like, how do you write the scripts and how do you get an animation studio to put this together? And how do you find the voice talent and the music and all this stuff? Uh, so it was a lot of fun. It's been quite a journey. That is amazing. And how long has the show been going? We started making it in 2018 and it premiered in September of 2020. Uh, so only six or so months ago. And the first season we made 40 episodes. Each one is a half an hour long. And so those are coming out on PBS. A bunch of them are out already. Uh, they have a bunch in the pipeline still. And the season ends with an hour-long special, a movie that we put together. It's going to be coming out sort of through the next year or so. And, uh, you know, hopefully there'll be more seasons. And uh, because PBS is really, like, focused on education, we also put together a bunch of digital games, these online games that kids can play, using the characters and living in the world of the show and, like, learning something. There's one where they can like, you know, collect little stamps for the birds that they find. Another one where they go camping and they can like unzip the tent and set up the sleeping bag and all that kind of stuff. There's like a whole little universe for this TV show that can sort of pull kids in and get them excited about science. Do you flip around the TV sometime and like, oh, look, there's my show. <laughs> <laughs> it was really weird the day that it came out. You know, this is something we've been working on for years. Uh, writing and thinking about and looking at the clips to see it actually out there in the world and to hear from people like, Hey, my kid is watching your show. That was really strange. Uh, but it was also really wonderful. Um, it was sort of incredible. Uh, this is not something I ever anticipated doing with my life. You know, I'm a physics nerd from Los, Los Alamos. I thought I might one day find a new particle, but instead I was like, I'm the creator of a television show for kids on PBS. Uh, it's been a wonderful adventure. Um, but yeah, a little odd to see that come out. See your name on the screen. You know, I have like an IMDB page now. Um, it's pretty strange. Uh, and is it on at a certain time on PBS? For people in Southern California who want to see it, is it a certain time? Or You know, I don't actually have live television anymore, so I'm not yeah. sure, but I think it's on in the afternoon. But you can also get the PBS Kids app uh, on your smart TV and you can watch the episodes there. It's also available on Amazon Prime. Uh, so you can watch it there. 
and uh, it's going international. We have contracts now in Israel and in Sweden and in Africa and South America for translated versions of it. So it should be everywhere pretty soon. That is amazing. And you're also a songwriter because I see you wrote the theme song for the TV show. <laughs> uh, no, that is a Wikipedia error. A Wikipedia oh. <laughs> not entirely correct. Um, they do give us credit for writing the music for the theme. We wrote the lyrics, however, and we worked closely with the composers. One of the really amazing and weird parts about working on a show like that is that you get to work with really, really gifted artists. And the musicians are a great example. You know, we work with these musicians who have done so much incredible stuff and they like really know their music and their instruments. And so here I am, a particle physicist, and this incredible musician writes this piece of music and sends it to me to review. I'm like, in what world am I reviewing your work, right? It's like, uh-huh. if I'm going to write a physics paper and send it to him for review, it'd be just as weird. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, here I am in this role as creator and trying to like make sure there's a coherent vision for the show and that it all comes together. Um, and in the same way, there were great artists, you know, that put together these characters and animated them and gave them the energy. And I don't know, the first thing about like directing an animated show and making sure that each scene flows to the next one and it tells a consistent story and how to put like a digital camera that moves through a digital world. But we were lucky enough to have a fantastic studio filled with really talented people. They really made the show what it is because there were so many gifted people who contributed. Where is the studio that actually produces the show? So most of the actual work happens in Toronto. Uh, we got a bunch of Canadian tax credits to help fund the show. And there's a studio called Pipeline Studios there. And they work on another television show for PBS as well. It's a pretty small studio. But when we were going around talking to studios to figure out like who could make this show, they really had a passion for it. We could tell they really wanted to do an educational show, something that was good for kids and not just some sort of like syrupy garbage like you see on TV a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, they pitched us something great and they showed us what they could do. And their art really matched sort of our vision. And it's been a great creative uh, collaboration ever since. Oh, good, good, good. If you're just joining us, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my guest is the multi-talented UCI physics professor, Daniel Whiteson. When I say multi-talented, I'm not only referring to his expertise in physics, but also his science podcast called Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe and his PBS children's science education TV show called Eleanor Wonders Why. And now, last but not least, Daniel shares about his new book that's coming out soon and his previous book. And then finally, your books. Please tell us about your book that's already out, but also your new book coming out. Yeah, it was like 2016 or so, and Jorge and I had done some online videos explaining science. He and I would talk about the science, have fun. He would edit it down and then do a video sort of illustrating our conversation. And some of those have been a big hit, you know, millions of views, et cetera, on YouTube. And so a book agent approached us and said, hey, would you guys like to write a book about physics with cartoons and science in it? And so we were like, well, we don't know how that works, but we'll give it a try. So we put together, you know, a chapter or two and sent it off to the agent and said, what do you think? And he said, I can sell this. So he got us a nice contract uh, to put out a book. And we wrote this book called We Have No Idea. And the idea of the book was instead of talking about all the things that science has figured out, all the incredible things that science has revealed about the universe, we wanted to look forward and think, what are the future discoveries? And the first step to understanding what science will figure out is accepting what we don't know today, sort of like walking people up 
to the forefront of human ignorance and looking over the edge into the abyss and accepting our, our lack of knowledge. And so that was the idea for the book. And we had a lot of fun with it. Jorge has these really hilarious cartoons that sort of like lighten the mood a little bit when we're talking about heavy topics like what happened before the Big Bang, stuff like this. And uh, we had a lot of fun. The book was translated into 25 something languages. Um, so I have a stack of them in all sorts of languages I can't read, um, which is fun. And, and that was a, a good time. And so after the podcast came out a few years later, we got a lot of questions from listeners. One of the things we do in our podcast is we really encourage listeners to ask us their questions because we want to make sure we're answering the questions that are actually in the minds of real people, not just the ones that are interesting to me. So I get a few dozen emails from listeners every day. and We answer all of their emails, but sometimes there's a really good question. We'll put it on the air on the podcast. And in doing so, I accumulated this list of like the most frequently asked questions, the ones people really wanted to know the answer to. So we decided to write another book where we address those questions specifically. And so that's the title of the new book. It's called Frequently Asked Questions About the Universe. And they're all inspired by questions we heard on the podcast. There are things like, you know, why can't I travel back in time? Or what's it like to fall into a black hole? Or like, is humanity going to extinguish itself? You know, can we terraform Mars? All sorts of these kinds of questions. These are real questions that real people asked. And so I figured, I hope a lot of people out there want to know the answers. Yes, yes. And when will that be out? That's coming out in November of 2021. So in a few months. It's available for pre-order right now. If you want to check out some details, you can go to universefaq.com. That's universefaq.com, all one word. And you can see a little sample of the book and the art um, from Jorge, which is sprinkled through there are like 400 new drawings that he did, little illustrating the science or just making a little joke. Uh, and you can pre-order it there. How did you meet Jorge? I cold emailed Jorge. Jorge is you know, sort of famous in academia. And back in 2009, I think it was, I was trying to think about how to expand my world a little bit. I was you know, an assistant professor focused on getting some research done and getting tenure, but starting to think about like maybe adding an outreach component to my work to communicate what we're doing to the general public. And I thought that cartoons would be a good venue, but I didn't have any like artistic skills myself. And I had a friend who was a physicist and an artist, but he's a physicist at Berkeley and he was way too busy. And so my wife, who's also a fan of PhD comics, she said, why don't you email Jorge Cham and ask him to do the drawings? And I thought, right. That's like emailing Brad Pitt and saying like, let's collaborate on a project. You know? um, but I emailed Jorge and he actually wrote me back and he was like, yeah, let's do a cartoon about dark matter. Sounds good. It might've helped that I offered to pay him to do it. And, uh, you know, usually just put stuff out there on the internet for free. But that's the first project we worked on. It's just from a cold email. And uh, we had a lot of fun working together on it, which I think why it led to more and more projects. And uh, so I feel lucky and honored to get to work with a kind of a celebrity and a famous guy um, who's opened all these other doors for me. Would you like to be an astronaut? I would not like to be an astronaut. Absolutely not. I'm terrified. Oh my gosh, that sounds really scary. I don't even go on roller coasters anymore. Uh, so the idea of being an astronaut, absolutely not. I would like to meet aliens, but I want them to come down here to Earth to talk to us. <laughs> okay. How about any re recent surprises in your area of expertise? We have a lot of exciting stuff going on in particle physics right now. 
we've turned on the Large Hadron Collider and run it at the highest energies ever, and unfortunately not seen anything new. That means we haven't like created new heavy particles that might give us a clue as to like why there are so many particles or what dark matter is made out of or all sorts of stuff. But we have seen some really intriguing hints recently in other experiments. There's an experiment at Fermilab where we take muons and whiz them around in a circle many, many, many times and watch how their magnetic field wobbles. And the magnetic field wobbles in a weird way that doesn't agree with the way we think it does. And that means that there might be a new particle there hiding out. Uh, there was another experiment at the Large Hadron Collider that saw weird particles decaying in a way that we didn't expect. And the theory tells us that it should decay in one way, and we see it decaying in a different way. And that's another clue that there might be new heavy particles out there. It's not very direct. It's sort of like seeing the footprints of Bigfoot instead of seeing Bigfoot him or herself. But it's a nice, uh, you know, sort of piece of evidence that there's something out there to find. Yes. How often do you go to that collider? Uh, not for quite a while, thanks to the pandemic. I used to go a few times a year. Um, I have a team here that's a postdocs and grad students and undergrads. And the postdocs are mostly at CERN. Um, and the grad students sort of go back and forth. They spend a couple of years here doing classes. And then they go to CERN to sort of be at the center of the world for particle physics and meet all those people and eat weird Italian and Slovakian desserts and all sorts of stuff. Uh, and then come back to UCI to write their thesis. Um, and then I go out there a few times a year to check in on them and connect with people and drink French coffee and all sorts of stuff. I haven't been, of course, in a couple of years, thanks to the pandemic, but usually I go out there a few times a year. Did the research really slow down a lot there during the pandemic? Not at all, actually, because CERN is so international that people from you know dozens and dozens of countries contributing that it already was very natural for us to work remotely. People from California and people from Tokyo and people from South Africa in a meeting together is no big deal. And so everybody from CERN is already very used to remote meetings and remote collaboration. And so it just sort of switched to 100% remote, but pretty seamlessly. So it didn't interrupt the work that much. There was some in-person work, like actual hardware, like electronics that need to be tested and developed that was delayed a little bit. But most of the work pretty smoothly went over into the pandemic world. Gotcha. Do you uh, work much with Professor uh, Jonathan Fung? I do work with Jonathan Fung. Um, he's a great guy. He's a particle theorist, which means that he thinks about the patterns of the particles and tries to find explanations for them and simpler ideas, uh, clues as to what new particles might be out there. Um, whereas I'm an experimentalist, I go out there and actually try to look for the particles. Um, but we have a lot to talk about. You know, I sometimes talk to him about like where those new particles might be or how we could look for them in our experiments. And so sometimes I try to cross the line a little bit and do a little bit of theory with him. Uh, he recently uh, has crossed the line in the other direction and he's leading an experiment to look for weird particles that might give us clues about dark matter. It's a small experiment down in the tunnels of CERN, sort of down the beam pipe from our larger experiment. But he's uh, you know, become a hybrid himself. He's a theorist but also doing some experiments. Can you tell us how that hydron collider works? Is it like a mile-long underground laboratory, or can you just give us a little light on that? Yeah, it's much bigger than a mile long. It's 33 kilometers in circumference. So it's a tunnel that's a perfect circle, and it's 33 kilometers in circumference, and it shoots protons both directions. So you have a tunnel that's like tall enough for a person to stand in, 
And then inside that tunnel is a little tube, just like a centimeter or two wide, that's filled with a vacuum. It's voided completely, except that there are protons shooting around the ring at almost the speed of light. There are actually two of these rings, so the protons can go in both directions. So you have one where the protons are going one way, another where the protons are going the other way. And then in four places around the ring, the beams cross. When the beams cross, you get these spectacular collisions and maybe make a new particle. And at those crossing points, we have a big cavern, lots of space where we, because we surround those collision points with electronics. So my experiment, the Atlas experiment at CERN is a huge cube of electronics. It's like four stories high by, four, by 40 feet wide, by something like 60 feet long. It's like a huge cylinder actually. It surrounds the point of the collision. It takes a massive digital picture of everything that flies out of it. And that whole thing is like 100 meters underground, crosses the border between France and Switzerland. Most of CERN is above ground. It's a bunch of buildings. It looks like a national laboratory. But in four spots on the campus, you can take this elevator down to the actual experiment where the particles are smashed together and we're taking digital pictures. Wow. What's the purpose of smashing them together? Is that just a natural thing that happens in the universe? Is that why you study it or, or why do you do that? We do that because it's not a natural thing that happens in the universe. Mostly the universe is sort of cold and slow. You know, the universe used to be really hot and dense. Back in the very, very first few seconds of the universe, everything was like a hot, dense, intense plasma. But then it got stretched out, cooled down. So now the universe is pretty cold. Like you go out to outer space, it's pretty frozen out there. But we're interested in those hot, dense moments. We want to know what can the universe do other than the sort of like stuff that we see around us? What else is it capable of? We want to see the whole menu of particles that exist out there. And so the way to do that is to create a little spot of density. You pour a bunch of energy into a tiny little spot, then the universe can make whatever's on its menu. Like if there are crazy particles out there we've never seen, in order to make them, we have to pour that energy into a little spot and let the universe use that energy to make those heavy particles. So by pouring a lot of energy into these collisions, we can let the universe sort of like free again, loosen up a little bit and show us what's on its list. And so we smash the particles at the highest energies possible, the highest energy that we can afford, that, that we can squeeze out of these colliders because it gives us more territory to explore. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI physicist Daniel Whiteson. One of the places Professor Whiteson applies his experimental particle expertise is in CERN, Switzerland, at the 20-mile circular Large Hedron Collider. Here he explains a great discovery that has been made there that he has worked on. And what have you discovered? Well, a few years ago, we found the Higgs boson, which is this crazy particle that interacts with all the other particles and is the reason why they have mass at all. In the sort of pure theory of particles, all the particles like electrons and up quarks and down quarks, they shouldn't have any mass. They should be all massless particles like the photon. But it turns out as they fly through space, they're slowed down. They, the way they move changes a little bit um, because they're all interacting with this field called the Higgs field. And the way they interact with the Higgs field is in a particular way that makes them move differently. They move as if they had mass. 
And so it turns out that the reason the electron has mass and the up quark has mass and the top quark has mass is not because there's like an actual amount of stuff there in the particle. It's because the particle is interacting with this weird field, the Higgs field, and it gives it inertia. It makes it harder for it to speed up and to slow down. And so in 2012, we actually found this Higgs boson, this particle that proves that the Higgs field is there. We made it in our collider. We saw it decay. And that's how we knew that it was real. Yeah. It, did you participate with some of that work? Yeah, I was there. It was pretty exciting. Um, you know, it wasn't like a moment of discovery where one day, boom, there it is, the Higgs boson. It sort of like slowly emerged. It's like, you know, watching a pond dry up and seeing a treasure <laughs> chest very gradually peek out from the water. And you're like, what is that? What's that corner? Oh, look, yeah. oh my gosh, I think that's it. And that's sort of how it happened. And one day you have to declare, okay, we officially say we found it as of today. And that was July 4th, 2012. But we kind of knew it was coming and sort of gradually revealed itself for months before that. Well, Professor, here's some just basic questions that just common people want to know. What sure. does periodic mean in the periodic table? Periodic in the periodic table means that there are patterns, right? You've got like, the ones on the left side of the periodic table that are you know, not very active and the ones on the right that are like metals and conduct electricity. And there are patterns there. It's not just like you make a list of the elements and that's all there is. You notice these patterns. You say, these elements are like each other and those elements are like each other. That's a really important clue because it tells you that there's something deeper going on. That's the clue that tells us like, oh, it's all about how the electrons fit together in the atoms. That, that's actually what determines whether something is active or not active or a metal or something totally different. And that's why we look at the periodic table of the fundamental particles. These days we have a new periodic table. It doesn't have like helium and lithium and stuff on it. It has like the electron, the muon, the tau. And we see those patterns. There are periodic patterns in that table. And we hope that those are clues that are going to lead us to figure out like what's deeper, what's below. Let us pull back a layer of reality and see what's going on underneath. Huh. How long is that new periodic table? Is, is that accepted? Is it universal? Yeah, that's that? the standard model of particle physics. There are 12 particles on it. There are six of them we call leptons, the electron, the muon, the tau, and three weird little neutrinos. And then there are six quarks, the up, down, charm, strange, top, and bottom. I know I had nothing to do with giving the names to those particles. They're ridiculous. <laughs> How about the curvature of space and time? Just <laughs> in a paragraph, it's fascinating and it just blows your mind. It's, it's related to mass and gravity. Do, do I have that kind of right? Absolutely, yeah. It turns out that gravity is not a force the way electromagnetism is a force. Right? You feel electricity or magnetism. You can tell it's like a push and a pull. Gravity, it turns out, is not actually a force. What happens when you have a mass is not that there's this like, mysterious force of gravity, but that mass tells space how to bend. So space itself is not like flat the way you might have like a, you know, a sheet on a bed. It's curved. And when people think about the curvature of space, they try to tend to think about it in their minds like, I'm curving in another direction. Like you take a sheet and you bend it down or you bend it up. It's the wrong way to think about it. That's like extrinsic bending. It's like with relation to something else. 
the bending of space is the changing of the relationship between two points. It's saying like, well, these two points are now closer officially than they were before. It changes like the relative distance between things. It makes it some things easier to get to and some things further away. And so gravity is just the bending of space. And then if you can't observe that bending, like I can't see bending of space with my eyes, it leads to all sorts of weird effects. Um, and those effects are gravity. Like the space around the earth is bent. And so instead of just like floating around, you tend to slide down toward the center of the earth. And that feels like a force. And that's the force that we call gravity. It's not really a force. It's just that space is bent in a certain way. So you move in a way that you otherwise wouldn't. Wow. In another direction, what's mm -hmm. the biggest star in, in our night sky? And I think I heard on one of your podcasts, is it Sirius? Uh, Betelgeuse is one of the biggest stars out there. And the biggest star in the universe, something with a crazy name with letters and numbers that I don't recall. But the interesting thing is that there's sort of like an upper limit on the size of a star. This star is like 300 times the mass of the sun. And that doesn't actually sound like too much. You might think, well, why isn't there a star that's like a million times the mass of the sun or a billion, right? The universe is filled with crazy huge stuff. Why can't stars just get arbitrarily large? And the answer is that if they get big enough, they start to blow themselves apart. As the star gets bigger, the pressure at the core gets heavier. And so they burn hotter and then they radiate more. And so then they basically just like blow out their outer layers. This energy that's pushed out from the fusion at the heart of a star then tears that star apart. So anything above like 300 times the mass of our sun is unstable and will blow itself apart until it gets down to that size. So that's why there's sort of like an upper limit on the mass of star you can have, at least in this universe. What would be the brightest star in our night sky? Is that the North Star? Um, yeah, I think Sirius is the brightest point of light in the sky. But remember that the brightest star in the sky is not necessarily like the actual brightest star. It's a product of two different things. One is like, how bright is it where it is? And the other is, how far away is it? Right. Because something really bright, if it's really far away, will look dim. Right. And something that's not actually that bright, but is close up, will look bright. And that was a puzzle for a long time. Like, how do you figure out how far away a star is? How do you tell if right. it's really bright and far away or actually kind of dim and close up? Um, and so that was a puzzle for a long time, but people have some really clever strategies for figuring that out. And why do we always hear hydrogen? Hydrogen, it's like always related to hydrogen. <laughs> Most of the universe is hydrogen. Uh, when the Big Bang happened and things cooled down and started to form into atoms, almost everything it made was hydrogen. And the reason is simple. It's the simplest thing out there. It's just a proton and an electron. And that's the first thing you would make because you have protons around, you have electrons around, they're going to form these little bound states we call hydrogen. And a little bit of helium was made in the Big Bang, and a tiny bit of lithium, but almost all hydrogen. To make heavier stuff, to make helium and lithium and neon and carbon and oxygen and all the stuff that you and I are made out of, you got to then fuse together hydrogen. You got to take that hydrogen, squeeze it together so that it forms helium, and then take that helium and squeeze it together to make the heavier stuff. That's not easy. You need a lot of pressure to make fusion happen. That can only happen in the heart of stars. So these stars out there in the night sky, they're not just beautiful. They're also factories for making heavier elements, elements which could be like the basic building blocks of future planets and alien civilizations. How about your top three 
all-time scientists or physicists. Have you ever thought about that? I haven't, but I could think about it. I think one of my favorite physicists is uh, Emmy Nuther. She's until recently overlooked female physicist and mathematician almost 100 years ago. And she developed a really, really deep theory, a theory of mathematics and physics that we're still sort of understanding. They're still sort of like grappling with the consequences of. She proved that if you have a universe that has any sort of symmetry, you know, like, for example, like it doesn't matter which direction you point your experiment. You do an experiment and you're out in deep space. It doesn't matter what's up and what's down. That's a symmetry of the universe. There's no preferred direction. Mm -hmm. She proved that because of that, that's why we have things like conservation of angular momentum. Every symmetry in the universe gives you a conservation law. And that's a really, really important result in physics. It sort of underlies everything we now know about particle physics. So she's definitely got to be up there. Also, I think it must have been like really kind of badass to be a female physicist 100 years ago working at the forefront. Like that could not have been easy. Right. I I totally agree. Did you say her name was, is it Amy or Emmy? Emmy. Emmy. Emmy Luther. Wow. I'm going to check her out. Uh, How about uh, uh, two others? Well, I got to go Carl Sagan, of course, because he was a great science communicator and also a science fiction author. Love his book, Contact. Um, and generally just, you know, it seems like a stand-up person. A lot yeah. of folks you hear about that are good scientists and even good communicators, turns out they have kind of like a seamy side or a sleazy side to them. As far as I could tell, Carl Sagan is squeaky clean and really somebody you could look up to as a scientist, as a personality, and as a person. So kudos to him for that. Cool. And last but not least, who's your third? I always wanted to meet Carl Gauss. Uh, You know, he is one of the most famous mathematicians in history, and he just contributed to everything. And his name is all over science, all over mathematics. Seemed like he must have been a really sharp guy. I don't know if he was a jerk, probably, maybe. You never know with these historical figures. But I always thought it'd be cool just to talk to somebody who made such an important contribution in so many different areas of mathematics. Um, maybe that's not possible anymore because science and math has become so splintered that you can't be in the forefront of every field. He might have been one of the last people to really like put his finger on so many different aspects of science in so many different areas. Yeah, very, very cool. Very good. How about, is there somebody in your mind, it's like that you can still say, it's like, I can't believe I met that person or I can't believe I worked with that person. <laughs> Does anybody come to mind? I once shook Bernie Sanders' hand and then Robert Plant's hand within two minutes. And that was a pretty mind-blowing <laughs> experience. I never thought that was going to happen. Um, like, wow, was it on an airplane or what? <laughs> no, uh, when we had our book a few years ago, we were doing book festivals. And we got invited to some Welsh literary festival. And I was hanging out in the green room. We're getting ready to give our presentation. And there was Robert Plant and then in walks Bernie Sanders. And so I'm like hanging out with Robert Plant and Bernie Sanders, not something you ever expect to happen outside of a dream. But yeah, I got to shape with their hands and chat with them a little bit. Professor, did you know that Led Zeppelin back in the day played at UCI? <laughs> I did not know that. Wow. There you go. Kudos to UCI. They were, they so were cool. on their way up. They had, <laughs> they actually, it was a double bill with Jethro Tull and yeah. uh, Led Zeppelin played a double bill at UCI. It was back in the late, later 60s. Well, I'm sure it was a good show. Yeah. Professor, anybody else who, who has inspired you in your life? 
Well, you know, my high school physics teacher, Antonio Redondo, he definitely inspired me. If it hadn't been for his love of physics and his joy of teaching it, I definitely would not have been a physicist. Yeah, um, that's 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 incredible. That's great. Yeah. How about adversity? Do, is there anything you know any any point that you can talk about? You you had this you had adversity in your life, and this is how you overcame it, or you know any rough spot. That's a great question. Um, I think on the contrary, I've really been lucky and the benefit of a lot of support and frankly privilege from a lot of people. You know, something that was a little bit of a challenge for us was that we are a two academic household as are a lot of people here at UCI. Um, my wife is biochemist, she's now a professor in the Department of Molecular Biology here on campus. Um, but it was a little tricky for us to figure out how to both end up with positions at UCI um, but I think that was more of an adversary for her. You know, she had to follow me from Chicago to Irvine. And then we went to Geneva so I could set up my lab there. And when we had a very young child, and then we went back to Irvine so I could teach, and then back to Geneva. I think we crossed the Atlantic something like 11 times in the first three years I was here uh, with small children in tow. And at the same time, she kept her academic career going. She did a postdoc in San Diego and uh, put out a bunch of really good papers and got herself a faculty position here at UCI. So that was really amazing. I think the adversity there was mostly unfortunately on her, but she really rose to the occasion. I'm uh, always amazed and impressed and grateful at all the things that she's managed to do. Oh, that's a really cool story. Well, and finally, how about in your spare time? I understand that you like to bake, jog, and board games. So what's your favorite thing to bake? How far do you jog? And what's your favorite board game? <laughs> Together with my daughter, we did a Great British Bake Along. So we watched the Great British Bake Off. And every week we made something from the show. And then we competed with some friends to see you know, who could make the best uh, three-layer chocolate cake or whatever they were making on the show. Yeah. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. Uh, we just we resolved that whatever they were making, we were going to make it. And yeah. so we learned a lot of techniques. We had to buy uh, special tools to make like super fine dough um, and all sorts of stuff. But we had a lot of fun. Um, yeah, and I like to run here because it's beautiful. You know, you can go 10 minutes away. You are running at Crystal Cove on the ocean. I feel so lucky that we live here in such a beautiful place. People come to vacation here, and we live here. Right. So I feel really grateful. Absolutely. And board games uh, with my family, we play all sorts of stuff. I like uh, Carcassonne and those kinds of games uh, where you're, like, building a world and trading sheep and wool and steel and all sorts of stuff. Uh, sort of slow strategy games rather than the game of luck. Oh, excellent. Professor Daniel Whiteson, thank you so much for the hour. It's gone by really quickly. We look forward to hearing more podcasts and, and your new book coming out. It, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you again to UCI physics professor Daniel Whiteson for taking us on this incredible, wonderful, amazing journey through his world of experimental particle physics, podcasts, his PBS Kids show, and his new book, Frequently Asked Questions About the Universe. Don't forget it comes out in November 2021, and you can check it out now at www.universefaq.com. That's universefaq.com. It's all one word. And don't forget, coming up next at the top of the hour is Entrepreneur Nation with Ash Kumra. 
the show that brings you business experts sharing their expertise about common business problems. Stay tuned. As always, thanks a ton to Piano Man extraordinaire Fred Kaplan for all my show theme music from his sweet blues CD, Signifying. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. I'm your host, Kevin Bostonmeyer, wishing you a very pleasant good evening. Keep working hard, and I am very grateful to have received the Moderna vaccine Thank you, thank you, scientists. So long, everybody. We'll see you next week.